they're saying Britain Trump. They call him Britain Trump, and people are saying that that's a good thing. That they like me over there. That's what they wanted. That's what they need. We, in this government, will work flat out to give this country the leadership it deserves, and that work begins now. After nine years in government, will this be a pivotal moment in history or a last gasp? Apart from a more hardline stance on Brexit and a few Winston Churchill statuettes, what will the new PM be bringing to the job? Well, I look at you this morning and I ask myself, do you look daunted? Do you feel daunted? I don't think, I don't think you look remotely daunted. Those are the big questions on the Weekly Economics Podcast today. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. My job is to serve you. Never mind the backstop, the buck stops here. So here to talk about the new PM, I'm joined by Andy Beckett, features writer at The Guardian. Hello, Andy. Hi. Thanks for being with us. And on the line is Christine Berry, co-author of the book People Get Ready and former director of policy and government here at NEF. Hi, Christine. Hi, Aisha. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us down the line. OK, so I'm going to dive into some of the big questions that we're grappling with this week. We're going to start with you, Andy. So instead of starting with Boris Johnson, uh, I want to wind the clock back a little bit. And I was wondering if you could tell us the story a little bit of the movement that he'll lead, if it is a movement. So you recently wrote a long read for The Guardian about the deepening crisis of conservatism. Could you walk us through some of your key thinking on that crisis? Yeah, of course. Um, Before I wrote the piece, I was thinking a bit about what an effective political party needs. And I think it needs dynamic ideas. It needs a charismatic leader. It needs a sort of campaigning machinery that works. And it needs a kind of social relevance and a kind of connection to how people are actually living. Mm. And I think that the Conservatives arguably don't have any of those four or five things at the moment. It doesn't feel like a a kind of political party with sort of huge momentum, with huge power, and yet we're living in the world that this party has created. So there's a kind of contradiction between the sort of lived reality of politics in Britain, the dominance of the media by the right and so on, and what I would see as a party that's kind of running out of steam in quite a few important ways. Mm. Christine, what do you reckon? I think politics has changed so much in the last five years that it's easy to kind of have become inoculated to how crazy a lot of the things that are happening right now would have seemed five years ago, right? So, you know, former Tory advisor can say um, that Tory think tanks are completely out of ideas, that they're just play acting and position taking and not kind of come up with, coming up with serious new policy, which is the criticism that was being leveled at the left, right, five years ago. Now the left is making the running intellectually. Um, you know, you can have a prime minister in Boris Johnson that's able to say, business in relation to Brexit. Yeah. You know, the Tory party has been the party of business for as long as I can remember for my whole political lifetime. And they're about to do something, i.e. Brexit, that basically the entire business establishment is completely horrified by. You know, Five years ago, they were completely dominating the economic story about how the country should be run with austerity and all the rest of it. And now they don't really even have an economic story. Um, and the austerity story is completely dead in the water. And I think you know, it's important to stop and realise just how completely crazy all of those things would have seemed five years ago when the Tories seemed so completely dominant of, you know, not just um, our political life, but the whole kind of public discourse really about mm. how things should be. 
Andy, I was wondering, because in your article, you have some like amazing stats about like the demographics of the Tory party, the history of the Tory party, a lot of stuff about where their money comes from. So I was wondering if you could share some of those kind of headline ideas so that people can really get a sense of what we're dealing with. Sure. I mean, something that really jumps out is that the Conservative Party is now getting more money from dead members through wills and bequeaths and so on than it's getting from members who are alive. Mm. And one of the writers of The Spectator said that it had become a zombie party, which is a kind of striking phrase coming from a right-wing magazine. Another thing that's striking is the electoral performance of the Conservative Party. You have to remind yourself that since 1987, in the last 32 years, they've only once won a really decent majority, Mm. whereas in that time, Labour have won several. Mm. So there's a kind of law of diminishing returns setting in with their kind of electoral performance that often they've squeezed in through a coalition or through a tiny majority like they have now, but actually winning decisively, which is something they did regularly through the 20th century, they've kind of lost the ability to do that. And I think because they're in power now and because the press are broadly dominated by the right, we don't quite see how poor their electoral performance has been over the last 32 years. One of the things they're doing is that they're really, really doubling down on the kind of elderly white vote. So mm. that proportion of the electorate, as, as a lot of listeners will know, vote in very large numbers and they're massively conservative. Um, So they're really using that to kind of hold themselves in power. But a problem for the Conservatives that's going to come quite soon is people who are currently middle-aged in their 50s, say, are not necessarily going to move to the right as they get older in the way that people traditionally did because the people in their 50s now have grown up with things like gay rights and feminism and environmentalism. So their formation is a bit different from the Conservative voters of old. So some conservative pollsters are beginning to worry a bit about what will happen in five or ten years when the next generation of 60-somethings don't vote Tory. That's a problem. Another thing that's going on is the conservatives are, are really focusing on the concerns of those people. So it's all about, you know anti-immigration sort of dog whistles. It's about Brexit. And these are issues which are very, very powerful. But arguably, they're not issues which are electorally useful in the places the Tories need to win. So in cities where the Conservatives are doing really badly now, all the anti-immigration stuff plays very badly. And even very wealthy people from ethnic minorities won't vote Conservative because they essentially say we don't like their policies on immigration. Mm. And that's a problem. So all these seats around the edges of London, the edges of Manchester, the edges of Newcastle, Liverpool, which were Tory seats in the middle of the 20th century, now the Tories are struggling to get them whereas they're piling up votes in the shires, which they would hold come what may. That's not what they need for a big majority. Mm. So, Christine, I mean, obviously, in, in, in can you tell us a little bit, first of all, headline on what People Get Ready is the book, what it's about, just so that listeners know? Um, it's really about how the left might need to prepare for what happens when you win after really a whole generation of being used to losing. How can the movement mm. sort of prepare for that and realise that, the task isn't just to win, it's to be ready to implement your program when you win. And we look a bit at, you know, what can be learned from the Thatcher revolution about how the Thatcherites planned and strategized to deliver their kind of transformational agenda and at various other examples from history. Yeah, you you spoke quite a lot about that in, uh, I think, another podcast I listened to, um, The Politics Theory Other. And it would be great, Christine, if you could just share a little bit about that kind of Thatcherite pre-preparation, because I, I personally didn't know any of that stuff. And when I listened to that podcast, it did blow my mind. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the documents I would really encourage anyone who's interested in this stuff to read, it doesn't take 
so long to read and it's very, very worth it, is the Ridley Report, mm. which was written in 1977 by a guy called Nicholas Ridley and was basically a battle plan for privatisation. It was a reflection of the fact that kind of the Thatcherites understood that if you're trying to fundamentally rebalance power relations in the economy, which is what they were trying to do, you know, they were trying to basically take on the public sector and the trade unions um, and kind of push through privatization as an agenda, um, that you needed to kind of battle plan and to strategize for that. Mm. Um, and it's all kind of in there from, you know, what are the industries where they call them non-vulnerable industries where we can win. And they talk about provoking battles in those industries, which included the civil service. We talk about that in the book. There was a kind of civil service strike early on in Thatcher's first term, which she did manage to essentially win. They talk about preparing um, the ground for battles in more vulnerable industries where the unions are strong, including the miners. Um, so there's a lot in there about, um, you know, really foreshadowing what happened during the miners' strike, um, including, you know, policing and looking at how, how they might need to police violent picketing and all the rest of it. And then they also talk about areas that are just kind of too politically popular to be privatized straight away, like the NHS, and that need to be privatized by stealth. Those are words that are used in the report. Um, and they talk about yeah. a salami slicing approach, one slice at a time, but by the end, the whole lot has still gone. Again, that's a direct quote. So, you know, it really gives you a sense of how far, even before Thatcher won in 1979, they had quite a clear sense of what they were up against, of, you know, what they would be able to do straight away, what would take a bit more time and what they needed to do in the early days to kind of prepare the ground for the things they would then do later. And that's the kind of thinking that we argue, you know, needs to be taking place on the left today and amongst those that are committed to to a similarly kind of transformational agenda. Um, I mean, I think that is probably mm. kind of less relevant to the Tory party today, just because, you know, maybe we'll come on to this. I don't think the Tory party today has a political project, certainly not a transformational project in the same way that Thatcher did, um, you know, back in the yeah. 70s. And part of the yeah. crisis that it's facing. Yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to talk a little bit more about is the kind of ideology of this. So to separate it from the political parties per se, obviously, Andy, you write explicitly about conservatism as an ideology. And, you know, our listeners are probably familiar with the idea of a party having different wings or containing different viewpoints within it. The Labour Party currently obviously has the Corbyn wing and the Blairite wing and everything in between. So what are the different wings of conservatism uh, or different kind of fragments of conservatism as an ideology, uh, Andy, rather than just the current political? Conservative Party? Well, there's a sort of continuation of the sort of Thatcherite deregulation, small government kind of project, and that still dominates the Conservative think tanks. If you read stuff the Conservative think tanks put out, a lot of it reads like it could have been written 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So there's still that kind of impulse is still there. But then mixed in with that are other bits which sort of rebel against it. Some of the things that Theresa May said, which she never actually did, about you know writing injustices and about maybe mm. giving workers a better deal. So there's a kind of more paternalistic, slightly more economically centrist idea in there too. And then there's also sort of verging on sort of nationalistic, verging on far right stuff, sort of dog whistles around race, some of the things that Boris Johnson has said. Yeah. So they're all sort of there in a mixture. And I think one thing that really struck me is the Conservatives in the last half dozen years have kind of worked through the playbook very, very quickly. So you had Cameron's kind of compassionate conservatism. You then had his kind of austerity conservatism, which was pretty tough, pretty right wing. You had stuff around the environment, which was adopted and then abandoned. 
you had stuff that Theresa May tried that didn't quite stick. And I think a sign of a movement or a party that's in trouble is it's kind of working through its options too quickly. I think yeah. when you've really got something good, you stick with it for five or ten years. And I think it's a sign of of panic, really, that there's this kind of rapid run-through of ideas. And you see the same thing in America with the Republicans and Trump. There's a kind of almost manic quality to his presidency and to what the Republicans are doing. And I think that's a sign of weakness. It's very exciting for journalists to cover it. So it gets a huge amount of kind of cultural space. But I don't think it's a sign of strength. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think I definitely that kind of flailing manicness feels feels true from a you know from an external perspective. I think I often wonder, and I think we discuss a lot on the podcast that founding ideology, as you say, of conservatism, which was very much kind of the Thatcher Reagan neoliberalism, now seems to be so confused. As you say, you kind of have on the one hand the like the very right wing reactionary stuff around immigration and race, and then uh, you kind of see them, you know. Know, like May borrowing from the left to talk about social justice and big society and all this kind of stuff. In terms of those different wings, what can we expect from Boris? What, you know, what are his wings right now? Where does he sit? Well, with Boris, it's hard to tell really what he believes in. In a way, he's emblematic of this sort of fragmentation because he sort of believes bits and pieces of all of this. He can sound quite pro-immigration. When he was mayor of London, he was quite pro-immigration. But then he also says things which seem rather anti-immigrant. He talks about tax cutting, but then he also makes noises about increasing state spending in other areas. So he's almost trying to hold all these contradictions in one kind of body of thought. And I suspect that the party will seem very right of centre and kind of anti-government one week, and then the following week he'll there'll be an announcement that seems a little bit statist. But I still think fundamentally the kind of free market deregulatory part of the Conservative Party is really strong, and I think he'll default back to that a lot. Mm. Um, and I'd argue that that mode of politics, although it was incredibly effective politically in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s, I don't think it's that effective in the current environment of kind of climate emergency and capitalism not really working very well anymore. Mm, Well, this is, yeah, Christine, so same question, what can we expect from Boris along those lines? But also on Brexit specifically, you know, in theory, uh, Boris is going to be the one who's negotiating trade deals with the US who are going to be pushing for like, you know, aggressive deregulation and, you know, free market economics, etc, etc. Christine, do you agree with uh, Andy's perception of what we can expect from Boris? I think it's quite difficult really to, to unpack the relationship between those two different wings of the Tory party, actually, or I find it quite difficult, you know, the sort of Thatcherite neoliberal wing, and the reactionary nationalist wing, because obviously, the agenda of, of people like Boris does contain elements of both. One way of kind of thinking about this to try and kind of go beyond um, some of those binaries and beyond the sort of remain versus leave binary is to realise that this kind of new style Boris Johnson full Trump Toryism is kind of about throwing the doors of the economy open to capital through these kind of new trade deals, through deregulation but slamming them closed to people through Mm. controls on immigration and kind of this increasingly racist rhetoric. Um, So I think it's not really about, it's sometimes framed as being about a sort of open versus closed, about this sort of Thatcherite, neoliberal, very open internationalist sort of, you know, tending to be more pro-Remain and this kind of reactionary xenophobic nationalist wing of the Tory party that tends to be more pro-Brexit. But I actually think that that kind of tends to obscure these issues about what we can actually expect 
this sort of new phase of tourism to deliver. Um, I think basically Boris Johnson, we can expect pretty much to go sort of full, full Trump, right? Yeah, yeah. It might be true in the long run that that politics is doomed for all the reasons, you know, that, that Andy's talked about, the kind of demographic time bomb and all the rest of it. But it can certainly do a hell of a lot of damage in the meantime, you know, potentially yeah. era defining damage. Like this could be our 1930s moment before we arrive at the 1940s and hopefully something better. Um, and I think that's that's the challenge for us all to be kind of grappling with at the moment. Mm. Andy, did you want to come in on that? Yeah, I think the point Christine's making is a really good one that there are kind of contradictions even within that kind of free market conservatism. And there always were under Thatcher. And there's a brilliant bit in Tony Benn's diaries when he's coming back from his constituency in Bristol to London and he meets Keith Joseph on the train. And Keith Joseph was one of the chief kind of ideologues of Thatcherism. And Ben and Joseph get in the same train compartment and they get on quite well because they're both radicals and they're both intellectuals mm. and they chat. And you only get Ben's version of it, but I think he's fairly honest. And he says they, they talk about you know, the free market and globalization and so on. And then Ben says to Joseph, if you want a free market in goods, aren't you going to have to have a free market in people as well and immigration and, you know, being unlimited? And will your voters wear that? And Joseph says to Ben, I honestly don't have an answer to that. I don't know how to reconcile the free movement of people and goods. And I mm -hmm. think that's something that the free market right is still struggling with to this day. They want capitalism in some ways, but they don't want it when it involves immigration. My understanding of the kind of at least the the philosophical f foundations of neoliberalism was that it you know as a political and economic project was designed to fill quite a, a significant void you know the abstract labor void or the idea that people were becoming like increasingly alienated from their own work and clamoring for more autonomy and different uh, ways of being and doing and that rather than saying okay we need systemic change to labor the neoliberalism the, the neoliberal solution was to offer a kind of psychological intervention which was to say actually we're going to change the individual's relationship to the labor th themselves we're going to come up with you know the idea of human capital the idea that you are your labor and it can't be extracted from you etc cetera, etc cetera. and we see, and and for me at least i think that that is an, an as an ideology and as a way of forming subjectivity has been so successful in getting people to think of themselves differently and think of their work differently and their relationship to it I just I would like to know from both of you if you think it's possible and what it might look like to design a political and an economic agenda which also took that same site of struggle you know the, the individual and subjectivity and consciousness but with a progressive outcome if, if what you're talking about is that that question of sort of identity and like you say as you put it psychological interventions and how, how are we kind of constructing ourselves and our sense of who we are um i think maybe this idea that is kind of gaining currency on the left of the democratic economy contains within it the seeds of kind of an attempt to to reimagine our sense of who we are as citizens rather than as consumers as kind of you know mm. constituents of something larger to to recapture that sense of solidarity and of being part of a sort of democratic community and I think people do and always have right, had that kind of latent sense of being part of something pro-social, being part of a larger community, um, you know, looking out for each other because humans are inherently pro-social creatures. And I think that was always one of the limitations of neoliberalism, you know, this Thatcherite idea that there's no such thing as society. Mm. I'm not sure most people ever really bought into that. Like we all know instinctively just in our own lives 
from the perspective of what we value as people. I think there is something very deep there about who we are as a species. Like we survive because we collaborate, because we cooperate. That is our survival strategy. And this kind of neoliberal idea of sort of Darwinian struggle that we're all basically rational maximizers competing against each other. Yeah. It's not who we are. And I think most people know it's not who we are. And I actually think there is something there that's ripe for, for a kind of new political project to exploit. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it does make sense. And Andy, so obviously Thatcher said economics is the method, the object is to change the soul and that one of her greatest creations was, uh, you know, new labour. And so first question, should we be trying to change the soul? <laughs> Second question, same question as before, if we are trying to change the soul, how do we go about that? I think for conservatives, one of the things that ought to worry them the most is that in London, where I live, which is arguably the most neoliberal place in Britain, the left does very, very well in elections and has done over the last 25 years. And prior to the 90s, London used to swing between the left and the right. It wasn't particularly a Labour city. So London, I would argue, is a very individualistic, quite tough, quite commercially driven place. And yet people, although that's their lived reality, are voting increasingly for parties of the left and not centrist parties but you know Corbyn's Labour Corbyn's Mm. seat is in Islington North which has a lot of individualistic go-getting people in it Mm. and I think that's very worrying if you're a conservative because somehow I think a lot of people especially younger people are managing to reconcile a kind of striving aggressive kind of personal work ethic with some sense of collectivity in how they think society should be Mm. and I don't think that contradiction's completely been kind of you know sorted out But I think that's a real worry, that there's almost like an individualism of the left, I would argue. And you see the beginnings of that, actually, back in the 80s when Ken Livingstone's GLC ran London and it ran it in a very kind of bottom-up, non-statist, quite individualistic way. That was almost the beginning, I would argue, of, of what we're talking about now on the left. So there's a kind of left individualism which can almost take on board some of the Thatcherite stuff about personal fulfillment and ambition and, and choice but still situate it in a in a kind of politics that's about more more equality and so on i think that's that's one thing and, and and this is crude but do you mean that's a good thing or a bad thing i think i'm sort of pragmatic in some way so i think that's okay i think mm. ideally People, you know, the sort of individualistic part, which I feel in myself, would be a bit smaller and the collective part would be a bit bigger. But I think for now, we've grown up in a society that's had 30 years of individualism. So that is part of us and that's part of who I am. My own career as a journalist, I'm a sort of semi-freelance person. I think of my own brand. You know, I think of myself in a much more individualistic way than I would have done if I'd been doing the same job in the 70s. So I think the left has to kind of work with that. You know, you're a delivery, you know, person and you're also setting up a tech business on the side and you're thinking of yourself as an entrepreneur but you're still a Corbynista that's the kind of complicated yeah. sort of range of experiences a lot of people have in cities in Britain but yeah I think for conservatism the the nightmare scenario is a sort of individualistic entrepreneurial Britain still opts for the left. Mm. Christine you, you've also talked before about interesting parallels with the 1930s could you quickly tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I I mean, I think what's really interesting for me about the parallel with the 1930s is really just going back to what we were saying earlier, really about about the crisis of conservatism and of neoliberalism itself. Um, You know, the 
30s was a moment where you'd had World War One and the Great Depression, you know, the Wall Street crash of 1929. And one of the things that's interesting for, for me about that is that you ended up with this sort of generational divide between a sort of older generation of establishment politicians that basically were convinced that only they understood the rules of the game, only they knew how politics worked, how you had to run the economy, and all of these young upstarts were, were just chatting nonsense, um, and that were very wedded to kind of mechanisms like the gold standard or constraints like the gold standard that mm. they assumed were just kind of facts of how you had to run the economy. And then you had a sort of younger generation that had been shaped by the experience of um, of war, of depression, who were basically like, this is clearly broken. The rule book needs to be ripped up and reinvented. Your expertise is basically obsolete. Mm. And I think that's quite an interesting parallel for kind of what we're seeing today, um, you know, where the, the neoliberals in a way, they were the radicals in the 1970s, right? But they've become the only true conservatives really now because mm. they're the ones that are kind of insisting in the face of all the evidence that things just need to kind of continue to be run as they always have, you know, change UK, for example. Yeah, um, you said that they're, yeah, the independent group are the only true conservatives. Say more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think, you know, for all the, <laughs> for all the, the name um, <laughs> has the word change in it, um, or yeah, the independent group, I know less so. Um, but that, that kind of continuity remain tendency that they represent both in the Tory party and in the Labour party. They are the only political force really in the country at the moment that are basically saying, we just want everything to go back to the way it was before the Brexit vote happened, before the financial crisis happened. And I think what's interesting about them is that they just, they doggedly, desperately insist that they represent the mainstream. This is a word that... um, you know, the change UK particularly love to use, like we have mainstream values and nobody even really knows what that means, but you almost feel they're shouting it into the wind as they become ever more marginalized and irrelevant, like we're the mainstream. <laughs> um, and it's kind of quite an interesting psycho-political phenomenon, I think, which is very similar to, you know, to the political establishment of the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I, I feel like from my own perspective as someone who's not like swimming in the political waters all the time and has a lot of friends and family who also aren't, that does appeal to people though. You know, that idea that like, I'm really busy, I don't know who to vote for, but that person sounds a bit extreme and they sound a bit extreme. She's kind of in the middle or that person's kind of in the middle. They say they're the mainstream. Like, don't people actually want to vote for that though? I think, I mean, it's interesting how badly Change UK or what it became has done when it's it's been up, you know, obviously it's a young party, but I think voters, you might imagine, want a sort of mainstream, moderate, whatever we call mm. it, but actually they're not really voting for that. Mm. You know? And I suppose one thing I, I'd say, though, that I think is a problem for the kind of radical left is that, um, I don't want to criticise colleagues, but I think a lot of the media, um, broadcast and print, the, the really important kind of political journalists and commentators basically cut their teeth in the kind of 90s and the noughties during the era of kind of centrism. And I think their skill set is often about analysing quite small shifts of policy emphasis and sort of gossip, who's up and who's down, that kind of stuff. And that's all important stuff. But I think when you're discussing big questions about should capitalism continue or should it change radically? I think a lot of journalists who are middle-aged, and I'm middle-aged myself, they're, they're really big names, struggle to analyse that. It's almost like they've got to learn a new skill set where they you know, have to do a piece to camera about with a capitalism. They'd much rather do a piece to camera about splits within Labour or splits within the Tory cabinet. So there is a kind of time lag where almost in the media space, 
the sort of mainstream centrist moderate and in inverted commas politics is still dominant and so change uk got fantastically favorable press and coverage all over the place mm. that's not necessarily where the public are but the center sort of still lives on in the media as the kind of ideal state and i think that will change but i think a lot of people who are coming into journalism now in their 20s and 30s those people need to be the political editors and, and the correspondents before we'll get a kind of media space which sort of matches the kind of political space and the social space. Mm. So something there potentially, like we've touched on in other weeks, about the internalisation of the there is no alternative kind of limits of the political imagination. And, um. Absolutely. That's, in, you know, even at The Guardian, some people will, you know, absolutely that will be their view. Politics is essentially about kind of compromise. It's about staying in the centre. And then when you say to them, well, look, Thatcher didn't win from the centre, they mm. sort of, Occasionally we'll say, well, okay, the right are allowed to win from the <laughs> radical fringes, but the left certainly can't because this is a conservative country and so on and so on. And mm. I, I think that there is an interesting time lag there. And I think I've, I've felt it myself. You know, I cut my teeth in the 90s and the noughties writing about New Labour and so on and about John Major's Conservative Party. And when these big issues are raised by people like Christine and I've written about them, I've really had to kind of almost re-educate myself. It's like, okay, I really need to go back and read some marks again and really start <laughs> thinking about this big stuff again. Whereas a lot of my career, it wasn't really necessary to know marks in 1997 because it wasn't going to be any part of what Tony Blair was saying. Mm. But now you do need to know that stuff. Um, and I think a lot of the media need to, to kind of acquaint themselves again with these fundamental questions of power within the economy and these things being up for grabs. Because mm. until they do that, they won't be able to give radical politicians of the left or the right a kind of fair hearing. At the moment, it's rather condescending at best, I think. Mm. And it, does the same happen kind of with the emergent ideology on the right, if there is any? So there's, you know, this book, Britannia Unchained, which was uh, written by some of the leading voices on the economic right of the party, like Liz Truss and Dominic Raab. Um, Christine, do you, you know, there's a lot of pro-market rhetoric being thrown about. Does that amount to an ideology? Um, and in response to what Andy said, does it get the same uh, response from, from, the, from the media? I mean, firstly, I think Andy's completely right about the era that we're in, I think, is characterized by, and I know Aisha loves a bit of Gramsci, this, this is a Gramsci <laughs> idea, right? that in, in these periods of transformation, there's this kind of growing disconnect between the common sense of the establishment and the kind of good, what Gramsci calls good sense, you know, kind of people's day-to-day -day experiences of, of how they feel their lives actually are. And I think you're seeing that disconnect now, That which is why, you know, in answer to your earlier question, I, I don't actually think that this, this kind of like mainstream centrism is necessarily what people want. It might be what the mm. media and, and kind of political establishment thinks that people want, but actually like if there's one thing that the Brexit vote, the 2017 election has shown us is that people are angry and they want change. And so I think that this kind of nascent, what you point to, the sort of new right, is the more interesting or potentially more relevant phenomenon for the future. I don't, I think that these kind of neoliberal, we're the mainstream voices are just going to become increasingly more marginalized and irrelevant. Mm. So to your question of whether, whether that constitutes a new ideology, I'm not sure that it does really. I mean, it goes back to our earlier conversation, doesn't it? About it's, it's this kind of weird hybrid of some quite neoliberal economic thinking in terms of, you know, even more radical opening up of markets with some kind of very reactionary nationalist attitudes on things like immigration. You know, again, we were talking about the 1930s, right? I think 
that does have echoes of the 1930s as a kind of response, as a way of conservatism trying to adapt and survive in this era where people kind of don't want to conserve the status quo. They're angry and they want change. And so there's a kind of brand of conservatism emerging with Trump and probably now with Boris that tries to kind of co-opt um, and adopt the rhetorical garb of that kind of anti-elitist sentiment and that anger at the status quo, but that actually underneath it all really is still defending the interests of the rich and powerful, still is quite pro-establishment, and also is kind of quietly or not so quietly redirecting that anger towards immigrants and towards outsiders. And I do think, you know, even if that is a, an interregnum, as it were, a kind of transitional phase on the way to a new you know, economic settlement along the lines we've just been talking about. It's one that could do a hell of a lot of damage over the next decade or so. Mm. Andy, what, what, Britannia Unchained, talk to me. I, I read that book when it came out, and in fact I wrote a Guardian piece about it when it came out, and I was struck by how old-fashioned a lot of it seemed. Essentially it was saying, even though we've already got austerity and or, although we've already had 25 years or 30 years of deregulation in Britain, what Britain needs is even more deregulation. That was the, essentially the kind of position. It's nothing new, is it? And Yeah, it might be powerful in some way, but it didn't feel fresh to me. I was quite sort of surprised, in a way disappointed, because I had to write a long piece about it. It's like, there's not, how much new stuff is there to say about this? Um, and it was all like, oh, we need to work even harder. You know, it, it seemed a bit orthodox, um, and I think that is, I've got a theory, I know I'm talking about the media too much, but I've got a theory which is in Britain, because the media is so dominated, particularly the print media by the right, I think that's almost too friendly an environment for conservatism, mm -hmm. and that they don't really have to do hard thinking, because pretty much whatever a conservative government comes up with will be approved of by most of the press most of the time. Mm -hmm. And I think Thatcher... Um, by contrast, faced quite a hostile conservative press in her early years as leader. And the Telegraph and the CBI and a lot of conservative institutions were quite sceptical. And that meant her policies were kind of battle-hardened, if you like. Mm. And I think now conservatism gets an easy ride, which means in the short term, that's great. It helps you to win elections. But I think it doesn't really make your ideas kind of robust. Mm. Um, and I often think of conservative ideas now a lot of things that Boris Johnson talks about, Brexit, they're almost like sort of hothouse plants that have grown up in this kind of very forgiving atmosphere. And then the minute you plonk, you know, the Brexit policy out in the in the kind of cold, you know, cold blasted heath, you know, where, where Brexit's actually got to happen, the whole plant just wilts because it hasn't, it hasn't really been stress tested. I'm mixing my metaphors here. And I think that's a real problem for them that conservative journalists think they're doing conservatism a favour by approving everything conservatives got with, but actually they're kind of not really. Mm. I think that there's not enough questioning. The other thing I'd say is, um, and the point Christine makes is a really good one, that, that there's a sort of time lag and people are still hankering for a kind of centrist thing now. Exactly the same thing actually happened in the 70s, that for a lot of the 70s, people forget this now, a lot of papers like the Times and the FT, The Economist, were all saying we need a government of national unity, we need a kind of new centrist project. Mm. That was a big thing in the 70s, was actually, where the action was in the 70s was either Thatcherism, a radical party of the of the right, or it was what Ben was doing, a radical project of the left. And yet the establishment in the 70s kind of missed the story for a lot of the decade. They've all pretend mm. that they didn't. But actually, if you go back and read The Economist from 1975, it's all Which about... Which I regularly do. Exactly. Very good Good for you. Um, <laughs> it's all about what we need is more moderation. We need corporatism to be updated. So I think there's a strong tendency 
in the establishment to say centrism is the solution. And again, a lot of journalists really like that because they kind of want things to go on as they were. Mm. And, and the radicalism gets slightly poo-pooed or missed or seen as a bit utopian. Mm. I mean, so much in that, so many metaphors are growing in my brain. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like what we're saying is, we're going to wrap up in a second, but it kind of, let me know if I'm being overly optimistic. But it sounds like what we're saying is, there is this exciting radical thinking that's going on on the left. People are laying the groundwork, at least in part. They're talking about what could come next. And then we have this kind of zombie ideology of conservatism without much fresh blood, kind of just plodding along uh, and, and it's on its last legs. Is that right? I, I agree with what Christine has kind of at least suggested, which is that it might be on its last legs or in decline or whatever our view of it, but you can still do a lot of stuff to change the country with a kind of declining project. Mm. I often think of the John Major government. John Major government did things like privatising the railways. So while everyone was laughing at John Major, he was arguably changing the kind of economic landscape of Britain just as much as Thatcher did. Mm. And even though conservatism was a slightly old hat, unpopular by that point. So you can do quite a lot in a centralised country like Britain, even if you've only got a kind of declining project. Even um, with the last breath. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also, if the left has problems, which I think it does, you know, we don't necessarily need to list them all, then <laughs> a sort of 30%, 35% conservative vote could maybe, you know, they could maybe eke out another election win. I think mm. not two more, but one more, you know, so that could be another six be or enough. seven years. Yeah, mm. so... Christine, um, what do you think? One thing that kind of I find useful here, just, just very quickly before we wrap up, is Thomas Kuhn's work on scientific paradigms and how they shift. And he talks about how just before you get a paradigm shift, what you get is this kind of complexifying phase where people desperately try and shoehorn things that don't fit into the old paradigm um, until eventually it kind of buckles under the strain and gets replaced by a new one. Mm. Um, and for me, that today means things like, you know, um, like Theresa May kind of trying to start talking about economic injustice and trying to fit that into the old paradigm. And, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that came out from the centre-right um, and indeed the centre-left on, you know, responsible capitalism, kind of trying to solve problems like inequality with the same thinking that created it, with things like shareholder votes on executive pay to deal with the fact that executive pay had ballooned because of shareholder value thinking. Mm. That kind of just recycling the same script to kind of d desperately trying to kind of understand the problems that neoliberalism has created within a neoliberal framework seems to be, even amongst the more intelligent, more interesting voices on the right that are kind of trying to to do things differently. That seems to be all they're capable of. And I think the fact that Theresa May, you know, even with what was by today's standards a relatively tame proposal for workers on boards, you know, it rapidly came up against the opposition of vested economic interests that her party um, relied on and, and that kind of got thrown out of the window. Mm. I don't see any signs really that there's the capability on the right at the moment for that sort of intellectual renewal. And so I think that new paradigm ultimately is going to come from the left and not the right but there could be a hell of a lot of pain along the way before we get there. There's an American writer, um, Corey Robin, who wrote a very good book, The Reactionary Mind, that came out a couple of years ago about mm. conservatism. And he had quite an interesting thing he said to me. He said that he thinks the conservatives in Britain or America won't really rethink properly until their vested interests are really, really damaged by the left, essentially, until the left actually has power and is actually shifting things around then conservatism may renew because they'll think, OK, we're really in trouble here. But at the moment, because conservatism is still kind of winning elections just about, 
there's still a sort of subconscious or conscious kind of complacency like oh we yeah. got away with it it's like we won one nil in the last minute so mm. we don't need to change the formation there's that kind of feel yeah. um the other thing i think we haven't talked about which we should mention briefly is a sign of a political movement in trouble i think is when it needs to use little constitutional tricks to win or to stay in power and i think mm. british conservatism now is deep into that game about you know proroguing parliament coalitions you know, mm. minority government, all kinds of little things around the Brexit debate that Theresa May's government did to prevent Parliament debating stuff. That's mm. all a sign of weakness. You don't do that stuff. Thatcher, Attlee, Blair, these people didn't need to play around with the kind of bendy British constitution to get their way. They could just do stuff pretty much the orthodox way because they had so much momentum on different levels. Mm. Whereas conservatism now, it's like all the stuff about suppressing the vote, um, you know, in Britain and America, again, those are sort of games with the electoral register. You don't need to play them if you're doing well. Mm. That's what you do when you're kind of clinging on. Mm. Okay, we are really going to have to wrap up because we're clinging on. That was brilliant and very enlightening. Um, thank you both so much for being with me. Andy Beckett, Features Writer at The Guardian. If people want to hear more from you, how can they do that? Um, well, you just if you look up my Guardian kind of page, there's mm-hmm. loads of stuff there. Um, and then I write history books um, for Faber and for Penguin um, about the kind of recent past in Britain. So Twitter? Um, Twitter. I am a kind of social media refuse neck. I know this is just absurd, <gasps> but I am probably because I think I've only got a limited number of good ideas. And if I, they're on Twitter, <laughs> I'll have nothing to say in long reads, which are very, very long when you start writing them. So. I like to think that's why I don't tweet, but it is not. <laughs> so no, no, I'm afraid you've got to read all my old media output in order to get anything that I think. But but for listeners who don't love a long read, there is an, there's a couple of audio versions. Yeah, of the long, long reads are all on podcasts as well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, you can do that. Awesome. Exactly. Exactly. And I do write shorter things as well for The Guardian sometimes, so you don't have to spend 20 minutes at a time reading my stuff. Okay, thank you, Andy Beckett. Christine, plug your book and tell us where else people can find you. Um, Yeah, so you can buy my book, People Get Ready, uh, with Joe Guinan in no good bookshops. Well, some good bookshops, but it's published by a right-on lefty publisher that's too cool to sell in most shops. So if you have a nice independent lefty bookshop near you, you can probably get it there, or you can get it online from Mm orbooks.com. That is it for this week, lovely listener. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. See you next week. Hold up. 